Um, just wanted to sort of catch you up as to where we are. We continue in our study on the book of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time today, it's a study we've been in for a while. We're uh, ending chapter 8 today. And one of the things that we, um, we, we do value here at Trinity is going through books of the Bible. Sometimes we'll have a series on a particular topic, but for the most part, on Sunday mornings, you'll see that we are going through different books of, um, of the Bible. And we do that because we believe in, in um, preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God. And so it brings us to, uh, to many different topics and uh, things that everything applies to us. And of course, the idea is that we take the truth of God's Word about what it says, and then we we, um, what we do is we pray that we would be able to glean an application from it. What are the implications and the applications to our lives today in the year 2018 uh, as we read these, uh, these ancient words that are true today just as they were um, thousands of years ago when they were written. And so we have been going through one of the Gospels. You know, there is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark. It is the shortest of the four Gospels. It is also the one, as I've said many times, that sort of seems to read very quickly because Mark is a writer who seems to be on a mission. He uses the word immediately a lot. And uh, actually in today's passage, you'll see him, we actually use that phrase, the way of Jesus, meaning on the way. That is what we're all about in Mark's Gospel. He is laying out the foundation of the identity of Jesus Christ and how he is on his way to the cross in Jerusalem. And today's passage is perhaps the most important uh, in the whole gospel story because it is the pivotal, the pivotal point in Mark's telling of the gospel. It is the pivotal point in Jesus' relationship with his followers where he teaches them all that needs to come, and he begins telling them what does it look like to be a disciple. Now, it's something that we've been talking about since the beginning of our study, that Mark's Gospel really is a focus on the identity of Jesus as the suffering servant, but for us it is what does it look like to be a disciple. That is why it's called the way of Jesus. What does it look like to be his follower? And so today is that point in the story where, um, where Jesus asks a, uh, a crucial question. And it is a question that each one of us needs to ask if we have not yet done so already. But it is also a question that every single person that's ever lived really needs to ask. And so it motivates us, as you'll see, to live out and to share the gospel. So today it really picks up kind of where we left off last week. And if you remember, the end of our passage last week was when Jesus healed a blind man. Now, I didn't spend much time on it, but Jesus healed a blind man in a very particular way. If you remember, he healed him in two stages. He spit uh, on, uh, and he created something where he spit on his eyes, if you remember that, and the the guy's sight kind of came back, and he said he could see people, but they kind of looked like trees that were walking around. And then Jesus once again put his hands on his eyes, and then the guy could see clearly. And of course, we recognize that Jesus didn't sort of mess up the first time and needed to do it again. But we see Jesus was teaching the disciples through a living illustration, sort of a living parable as it were, the fact that his followers could see 
but not see so clearly yet. That they would recognize who He is, but not truly understand all of the implications of Him being the suffering servant. And that's sort of where we pick up today, because we read everything in context, and it's important to understand what Jesus is talking about. So you know, when I was back in, um, back in junior high, I, um, I remember I started having problems seeing the writing from the teacher on the board. And it was starting to affect my schoolwork. And I remember having to squint more and more. I started to get headaches as I couldn't quite see. And so I sort of asked the teacher if I could move closer. And I got to move a little bit closer to the board, but I was still having problems. And I also noticed that I, at the time I was playing on the, the baseball team for the junior high, and I was having a problem seeing the pitches come in. And I hadn't really had that issue in the past as much. And I, I just knew something was wrong. And so Finally, went to the eye doctor, and lo and behold, I needed glasses. Now, I look around, and I think the majority of us wear glasses or need it. Some of us maybe hide the fact that we needed to read these days, right? But we all understand what that looks like, and many of us can relate to that point in time where we recognize, yes, I need to get glasses. And once I did, man, I could see the board so much better, and my grades improved, and, and, and I could see the ball so much better, I still wasn't able to hit it too well. But I could see it go by me, so clear, you know. Man, yeah, that was a strike, and I missed it. And so that meant something. But, you know, we need to be able to see as clear as possible. That's why we go to the eye doctor. And we know throughout life, those of us that have glasses, we see that our eyesight can deteriorate, and so we need to go back and get, you know, a stronger prescription so we can continue to see clearly. Jesus was teaching his disciples, you need to see clearly do you see clearly enough so he healed the blind man in a way to teach the disciples a lesson and mark includes that teaching parable in his gospel to show us in the context of everything that's playing out to say look yes we recognize the identity of jesus but do we truly understand who he really is and then what he is asking of us he just like the blind man at first he said he could see a little bit, but he, he saw people walking around like, like they were trees walking around. And if I took my glasses off, that's what all of you would look like. That's how bad my eyesight is. I could see there's people, but you might as well be trees walking around. That's kind of what happened with the guy. But, but Jesus is teaching his disciples, you say, you know who I am. And in our passage, Peter makes that confession. He says, but you still don't understand completely what needs to happen. And that's the crux of our passage. So perhaps this is the most important part of the whole gospel. It's the pivotal message. It's the pivotal uh, passage where we see Jesus says, okay, who do you say that I am? And that's what we're going to be focused on today. Church, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you understand who he truly is, who he said he was. Do we just go based upon opinion or on the truth of God's word? Do we base our idea of God's identity and the identity of Jesus Christ on what other religions might say or what other people might say? Do we base it upon his identification of himself in his very word? And then what are the implications for us? Because today, perhaps more than any other message so far, there are some pretty strong implications to what it means if we truly recognize, as Peter does, 
that he is the Christ, the anointed one, the coming Messiah, then that changes the whole game. It's a game changer. And so let us listen carefully to the words of God this morning. Our passage is Mark 8. It's verses 27 all the way through the first verse of chapter 9. We're going to start in Mark 8, starting in verse 27. And here is what it says. Again, Mark 8, 27 through 9, verse 1. And when Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, Master, one of the prophets. But then he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also Be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not even taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some very powerful words from the Lord Jesus, aren't they? And I mean, some of us will say, man, maybe I don't even want to hear what the message is today. But it certainly is, um, again, such, a, um, such an important and a key um, teaching of the Lord Jesus to his followers. You know, if we keep in mind the miracle that he performed just in the end of the last passage, when he healed the blind man, Jesus is saying, I need you to see more clearly. And so we see what happens here is there's three things. There's a confession There's a confession about who he truly is, but then there's some confusion about what that means. See, there's an identification of Jesus, there's a confession, but then there's some confusion about what that really means for them as followers, and then finally, even just the first verse of of chapter 9, what happens is we see that there is then a confirmation given 
by the Lord Jesus. So we'll look at the confession. Then we see most of this passage is Jesus trying to clear up the confusion because he could see it in their faces. He could see they were still in some ways looking as if there were men walking around as trees. Their eyesight, their spiritual eyesight was not quite there yet. But then Jesus gives a powerful, a powerful confirmation about his identity. So let's start with that first. The identity, the true identity of Jesus Christ. It's, it's part of the, the, um, the story of Mark of getting the point across that Jesus truly is the Messiah. The Son of God, the suffering servant, the one who came to give his life. And so here we see Jesus asks a very pointed question. But they're on their way, and that's important too, so let's keep this in mind. Where are they going? We have seen in the first eight chapters that they were in and around the area of the Sea of Galilee, different shore towns. They even then went across, remember, to Tyre and Sidon. Remember, then they came back, they went down to the Decapolis, kind of all around that region. But now it says, and Jesus with his disciples, they went on their way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Here's what they were doing. Jesus is finally beginning to make his way to Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to see. This is a turning point in the story of Jesus Christ. Because from this point on, chapters 9 through the end of the book, we're going to see Jesus and his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And so it's going to be key for us to keep that in mind. And so right here and now, before they start making their way to Jerusalem, Jesus, knowing everything that needs to happen, he asks them this most important question. First, he says, who do the people say that I am? You remember we've covered this in the previous chapters, and they go through it again. Some people thought he was actually John the Baptist. A little confusing. Some people thought that he was Elijah come back, one of the other prophets, and they tell him that. This is what people are saying master that maybe you're just one of the prophets or even elijah and there's a lot of confusion there but then he just brings it to a head doesn't he jesus always getting to the root of everything and he asks them a question jesus is the the master storyteller but the master at asking the perfect question isn't he and he says okay but who do you say that i am he brought it right to them made it so personal this whole passage today is quite personal church It's all about who do we say Jesus is and what does that mean for us? And he's going to lay it out. And so Peter, sort of the leader of the disciples, the one who is so, just, it gets so riled up, the one who seems to be so, you know, excited and then other times just so down, right? We can relate to him so much. Peter says the right thing. He says, you are the Christ. He nails it on the head. He says, yes, you are the Christ. In Matthew's version, it says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter correctly identifies Jesus. Yes, that is who he is. But what does Jesus say? First, he doesn't say anything about that. It says, he strictly charged them not to tell anyone. Isn't that interesting? We've seen Jesus do that. But here, his disciples, Peter speaking for the whole group, answers the question correctly, you are the Christ. What does Christ mean? It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the promised Messiah that the people of Israel, the Jewish people had been waiting for, for all this time. 
Remember we saw at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we noticed there was about 400 years of silence from God. No prophets. And then John the Baptist comes as the last prophet, ushering the way in for Jesus. And so they had been waiting a long time, way even before those 400 years, and the time was right, and here comes Jesus, and He is the one. Mark has been making that case all along. And so Peter, on behalf of the disciples, answers correctly, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, in in effect, saying, yes, don't tell anybody. So let's stop there for a second. Why would that be? It's important we understand. There's a couple of reasons. First of all, many many of the followers, including some of the disciples, they had basically based their understanding of Jesus' identity on opinions and not convictions from His Word or even from the prophecies of the Old Testament. See, there were people, there were religious leaders who had already made up their mind about Him and they were ready, they were ready, awaiting to trap Him and to even kill Him. But there were just the commoners, the people who just wanted to see the miracles. They were the crowds, right? They kept turning up everywhere Jesus and the disciples were going. And they just wanted the miracles but with little desire to submit to His true message, to submit to His leadership and authority. Right? And so at this point, if everybody were to announce Him as Messiah, it might stir up like a political uprising, a revolt that is not what Jesus came to do. And so there were many opinions out there about who He was, but it wasn't truly who Jesus was coming to say that He was. See, they didn't have the full picture yet. They could not see fully and clearly just yet. I mean, Jesus came, first and foremost, to restore Israel to her glory, to be her Messiah. But that would have to wait, because then as we also saw the religious leaders representing the nation of Israel, they rejected. They were going to reject Him, and He knew it. And so the the Gospel then goes to the Gentiles. But see, what was happening was they recognized His identity, but Jesus said, don't go and say anything yet. It's not the right time. So Jesus charges them to tell no one. Just like all the people that they healed, he said, go, most of them, he said, don't go yet and tell. It wasn't the right time. It would have created a scene that Jesus didn't want yet. It also would have created more crowds, people wanting more miracles, and it would have perhaps even gotten in his way of heading to Jerusalem. So Jesus says, yes, you're right, but don't tell anyone yet. But then verse 31 says this. He began... He began to teach them something that he had not yet taught them. That's really important. That's why it's so pivotal. It says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, but then come back to life and rise again three days later. And it says he said this plainly. I love that. Is that important? Like Mark says it like he made it so clear as if when you're reading it, he says, just go back and read it again very plainly. No mincing words. It's very easy to understand. Jesus told them, right? He said, this is what has to happen. They had not yet heard that before. And Jesus then begins to teach them. Once they identify who he truly is as the anointed one, he begins to teach them, okay, now you need to have your vision cleared up even more to see what I'm truly asking of you. So he says, that it says that he begins to teach them these things. He said it very plainly. But look at what happens next. There's this really interesting interaction between Peter, leader of disciples, and Jesus. 
So it says after Jesus began to teach him these things that he's got to suffer and he's going to be persecuted and he's going to be rejected and killed and come back to life. He says all that. And what does Peter do? You can picture Peter just kind of pulls Jesus aside and says, hold on, hold on a minute, Jesus. Let's go over here and have a little chat. I'm not quite sure we're all on board with what you're saying. And, you know, it doesn't sound like such a nice message. And so Peter is rebuking Jesus. Can you imagine that? Peter is pulling the master aside and said, I think you got it all wrong, Jesus. You kind of gotten off base on your message. So what does Jesus do? It says in verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples. Can you picture it? He's with Peter and they're talking and Peter kind of pulls him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus kind of looks around, makes sure the disciples are watching. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says these words, which can be hard to hear. And why would Jesus say such things? But he says, get behind me. Satan. Could he use any stronger terms? Get behind me, Satan. But then he explains it. So let's not just get caught up on that. We'll look at that for a moment. But then he explains it. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is why Jesus was rebuking Peter. Now, let's understand this. Of course, Jesus is not calling Peter Satan. He is not saying that Peter is all of a sudden possessed or even oppressed by Satan. But what is he saying? And he explains it. He's saying, Peter, and he's saying it to all the disciples, you just a moment ago, isn't it just like Peter, just a moment ago, you stood up and you shouted it, you're the Christ. And then you're rebuking me. Why? Because you are setting your mind on earthly things. You're thinking like mere men. I just told you that I have to suffer and be persecuted and die, but I'm coming back to life and And he's saying, Peter, don't you get it? Don't you yet see clearly? He said, you're thinking like Satan wants you to think. You're thinking, and listen, this is important. He says, you're thinking that you're going to get all the glory without needing to go through the suffering. And Jesus' kingdom is just the opposite, is it? He said, it's all about the suffering that then leads to glory. You see, it's the same thing that Satan tried to do with Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember what Satan did when he talked to Eve? And he was just like, no, you won't die, Eve. Go ahead, you can eat the fruit. It's all right. He's basically saying, you, what was Satan saying to Eve and then to Adam? You can have all the glory. You can eat of the fruit. No need to suffer. Nothing bad will happen to you. It's the same thing that Peter is falling into. He loved the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, the Anointed One. Remember what they were expecting. He was going to come and overthrow the Roman occupation. That's what Jesus is saying. This is not a political uprising. This is not a revolt. The message is revolutionary, but I am not coming as a revolutionary leader to lead you into war in that sense. And Jesus was afraid that was going to be the message. See, So he rebukes Peter Right away, in front of the disciples, to say, let's just nip this in the bud right now. Get behind me, meaning put those thoughts behind you. I am the one. Keep your eyes fixed on me. You just admitted who I am. Now I want you to think like it, and now he's going to tell us how to act like it. But that's message for us today, church. We correctly identify Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, as Peter did as the only way to be reconciled to God, the only means of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We identify ourselves like that. We wear crosses. We put tattoos of crosses on our bodies. We take the name of Jesus. 
But then are we living it out? Do we truly understand what that means? So Jesus rebukes Peter. And He says, don't think like men. Don't think in the flesh. Think on Me, for I am God. Keep your eyes and your minds focused on Me. That's part of repentance, isn't it? That's the whole idea of changing your mind about who Jesus is. When He came and John the Baptist who came in, what did they do? They came and they, re- they said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was saying, change your mind about who I am. I'm the Messiah. I've come. Offering the kingdom to you. It's the same thing. So verse 34, as we move forward, He calls the crowd to Him with the disciples. He gets everybody together. He sees they're all there. And then he teaches them these words in verses 34 to 38. I'm going to read them again. Just just listen to it, church. You know where we're going with this. There was such confusion, but then Jesus has to make it clear. He's got to make it clear about who he is and what he's expecting of them. So it says, if any, this is Jesus' words now, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Then he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I want to give us some uh, important words here of context. Throughout the Gospels, throughout the letters of Paul, throughout all of the books of the, the New Testament, we have to be careful that we recognize um, some key things in interpreting Scriptures. Okay? We all talk about reading the Word of God in context, right? What does it say? And if you're taking a verse or a passage, what does the whole chapter say? What's the whole book about? And where does it fit into the whole story of God? We need to look at it in context. But an important part of that is to see who is a being addressed. And anything that we're reading in God's Word, are they, especially in the New Testament, is it being addressed to disciples, believers, or non-believers? It's really important that we make that distinction. Are these words, even today, that we see Jesus giving us, are these words that are given to Believers or non-believers, are these words about how to become saved? Are these words about eternal salvation? Or are they directed to disciples who are already believers who then saying want to make a commitment to Jesus? And I believe wholeheartedly that these words are to the disciples who are already believers. These words are for those of us who are already believed in the Lord Jesus who then are called to make a commitment to be a disciple. So these words here, let's keep it in context, are not about salvation. But they are about saving the life that you have. See, even that word save, it doesn't always refer to eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. Oftentimes the word save can simply mean being protected to being held onto. Do you see it's important that we understand how it's being described and how it's being used? So what Jesus is simply doing here is he is talking to the disciples and the crowd, and he says, you want to follow me? You want to keep getting the free meals and the healings? You want to do that? Here is the road that I'm asking you to travel along with me. There is a journey. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And this is what it's going to cost you. 
See, discipleship is costly. Salvation is free for us. It costs Jesus everything. Am I right with that? And so salvation is a free gift, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by grace through faith. And it's a gift of God. It's not of our own works so that no one can boast. Salvation is a free gift. God did everything by His grace for us. Salvation starts and ends with the grace of God. We cannot earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't have to continue to work to hold on to it. We are secure and assured of our salvation. We praise God for that. But Jesus here is then addressing those believers and saying, okay, you believe in me. You identify that I am who I said I am. Now what are you going to do about it? Are you willing to follow me? Because here's where I'm going. I'm heading to Jerusalem. And here's what it needs to look like. I'm going to suffer. Your master is going to be persecuted. I'm going to be rejected by my very own people. I'm going to go to the cross. A means of persecution and suffering meant just for the criminals. The lowest of the low in society. But then there is hope. Because on the third day I will rise again. And it says Jesus started to tell them all about it very plainly. And that's what got Peter and the disciples so upset. Why? Not just because they didn't want to see their master suffer. Probably more of selfish reason, wasn't it? Jesus, if what you're saying is true, that means we're going to suffer also. You're saying that there's a cost involved? I thought this was going to be a glorious victory you're going to win for us, and all we do is just bask in the glory, and, and then it would require nothing of us. And Jesus says, no. I'm offering you salvation for free, but if you want to be my follower, you want to be my disciple, here's what it's going to look like. You need to deny yourself. Take up your cross, not his cross, your cross, and follow me. What does it mean to deny ourselves? Jesus is saying you need to put your own opinions, your own desires, your own selfish will, you need to lay that down and take upon yourself my will, my desire for your life. It's about surrender, church. It's about surrendering. Jesus is saying, you want to be my follower and follow me all the way to Jerusalem? It's going to mean you've got to follow me all the way to the cross, not halfway there. So it's going to, if, if they're going to persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If I'm going to suffer, then you're going to suffer. See? He was saying this is what it looks like to be a disciple. Are you willing to walk this same road that I'm about to walk? Are you willing to continue on this journey with me understanding that in order to get to glory, we go through suffering. And Jesus is teaching him that. He even then goes on to say, whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. See, again, that's not talking about salvation, eternal salvation from sins. He's talking about saving like keeping it. The idea is whoever would save his life, like try to hold on to it, try to gain as much as you can in this life, you're going to lose it. What are you going to lose out on? You're going to lose out on the blessings of being a follower of Jesus. You're going to lose out on the spiritual blessings. You might spend your whole life trying to save it. Save your life. Be comfortable. Gain as much as you can. All the world has to offer. But Jesus says in the end, that's really wasting your life. That's what it really means. When he says losing your life, it means like wasting. You want to waste your life in me? You've identified yourself as a believer but now you want to be my disciple, here's what it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your very own will, your pride. Lay it all down. Because there's no place for that on this journey we are about to take. Brothers and sisters, like we're on this journey with Jesus, are we not? We're on this journey of being disciples in Him. And we are to follow Him each and every day. 
And he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross. Other Gospels say, take him up daily and follow me. It's a decision we make to be a disciple, but then every day we make that same decision. Are we willing to be disciples? Are we willing to make that commitment? We've already identified who he is. We identify ourselves with Christ. We believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation. Scripture tells us over and over, you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. We trust him for salvation. Then are we willing to make that commitment? And he says, you know what? If you're willing to give up your life for me, if you're willing to lay it all down, then you will save it. You will gain it. You know what? There's um. There's an interesting teaching of Scripture that we don't always talk about, but it's really a key to, um, to this teaching of Jesus that there will be some kind of reward system in heaven. I'm going to read a passage in just a second about that. But in some way or another, we will be judged by the Lord Jesus Himself as believers. We will be judged on what we have done with our faith in Jesus. Now, This judgment is separate from the judgment that the unbelievers receive than when they get their eternal judgment being separated from God. This is a judgment for believers that happens when the Lord returns, the second coming, right? After the tribulation, we've kind of gone through that. But the picture is this, church. There is a judgment for us by our Master, by the Lord Jesus, not to determine our entrance into heaven. That's already been secured. But this is a judgment based upon our works. What have we done as a disciple? And in some way it's going to matter. Now, I also like to say and remind myself of this. I also know the truth of the matter is when we get to heaven, we spend eternity with Jesus, we won't be jealous. We won't be angry. There'll be no more sorrow and pain. So whatever that reward system looks like, we won't be seeing our friend kind of like they're in the front row and we're up in the balcony. And we're saying, man, I wish I was down there. But see, the point is, is that Jesus and, the, and um, the apostles and the writers in the New Testament, they make it clear that what we do, and this is really the key here, what we do with our life in Christ, it matters. It not only matters to the here and now, the people that we are a witness to, to God getting all the glory, but it matters for eternity. See, what happens, church, when we as believers, when we sin, when we're disobedient to God, you know what happens? We don't lose our salvation. We break fellowship with God. It's a temporary break. You know when you go through a relationship and you get in a fight with somebody? And you feel bad. You feel like, okay, now there's like, it's awkward. There's like a distance between you. You're looking for that reconciliation. And things are just bad. You get like a a sick feeling in your stomach. Like, I don't like being mad at this person. That's kind of what it's like when we are disobedient to God. There's a temporary break in that fellowship. And then maybe we don't make decisions well enough. And we, we have sort of this cloud over our head. You see, it's the effect of sin. But what happens is we then rob God of glory. Do we want to be robbing God of His glory? See, when we're obedient in the faith, church, we, we are obedient to Christ, God gets all the glory. You know, there's this great picture in Revelation of the 24 elders, remember, sitting around the throne and they have these crowns. It represents the crowns that we will gain for our rewards, for our good works in Christ. It's a teaching of Scripture. We will gain these different crowns. But you know what's awesome? We see this picture in the throne room in the, in the opening chapters of Revelation that what do they do with their crowns? They lay them down at the foot 
of God on His throne. Isn't that beautiful? They earned those crowns for the good works they did as a believer. But they even take those crowns they earned and lay them down at His feet. That's a picture of humility. That's what we're supposed to do now. But recognizing this, look at what 1 Corinthians 3 says. 12 to 15, I think it makes it pretty clear. Now if anyone builds on the foundation, again, this is talking to believers, let's make it clear. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, that represents all of our works as believers, each one's work will become manifest, meaning it will be revealed. For the day will disclose it. That's the judgment, that day, that judgment of believers. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on, the foundation, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What an amazing picture. Do you see that? Do you catch it? So the idea is that our works in Christ, our works in faith, can either be like silver, gold, precious stone. Those things pass through fire unscathed. Those are the, the works in Christ we get rewarded for. But if our works are like wood, hay, and straw, what happens when you put those things through a fire? They burn up. Those are the times that we're disobedient, church. Those are the times when we disappoint God. Those are those, those times when we give in to that temptation and we sin. Those are the things that will not make it through that fire of judgment. Again, not determining our eternal state that's already paid for by Jesus. Paid in full. But these, these are the works that we do in Christ as disciples. So that's what Jesus means when He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but you forfeit your very being? You forfeit the life in Christ. Jesus is saying, look, you want to live that victorious life? You want to live that victorious life in Me? You want all of the blessings that I'm offering to you? The Father loves the lavish blessings on His children. Isn't that awesome? He loves to do that. Jesus says, you want that? Then you need to give give up your pride. Lay down your own idea for your life. Lay it down at the foot of the cross and follow me. Are you willing to follow me? Remember, Jesus is beginning his journey to Jerusalem. And he starts to tell his disciples, okay, let's get this, let's get this clear once and for all. This is what it's going to look like. And this is what I'm requiring of you. And then at the, in verse 38, he says some more words. should really take in light of what we read in 1 Corinthians. He says, if you're ashamed of me, in this world, then I'm going to be ashamed of you before my Father. Now again, it doesn't mean that He's not going to welcome you into heaven. What does it say in 1 Corinthians? He said, though, him, though He Himself will be saved. But what does that really mean? Why would Jesus say He would be ashamed of us? Do you want that picture? Do you want it? You have that picture in your head you, and you get into heaven, you get before that judgment and Jesus says, I'm ashamed of these things that you've done? We don't want to hear those words. Don't we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? But he says, if you're ashamed of me now, you're ashamed of the gospel. If you're ashamed to be seen with me, if you're ashamed to identify yourself with me, it's like he's saying it to Peter again. You say that I'm the Messiah. You'll tell everybody I'm the the Messiah, but then you don't want to follow me through the suffering and the pain that I'm going to follow? He goes, it doesn't work that way, Peter. It doesn't work that way. And put your name in there. See, that's what he's telling us. He says, if you're going to be ashamed of me, on this side of heaven, 
then I'll be ashamed of you on that side of heaven. We'll still be in glory with him. But he won't go before the Father and give us a good report. In a way, it's kind of like a report card. It's just a way to look at it. You still get the grade, but maybe eh, B minus. I don't know. But you see what I mean? Like, there's different ways we can see it. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But the idea here, I think, is clear. What is Jesus saying to us, church? In our last few minutes together, what is he telling us? He's telling his disciples, you have identified with me. You can see, but you're still seeing people as walking around as trees. Your vision is not clear enough, yet your spiritual eyes are not seeing as clearly as they should. And so he lays it out before them. And says, you want to take this journey with me? We're going to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. He doesn't mince words. I'm going to suffer, you're going to suffer. I'm going to be tortured, you might experience physical torture and pain. I'm going to be rejected, you're going to be rejected. Is that the road you want to go on? Peter at first said, no, we don't want that. That doesn't sound fun. We want to get all the glory without the suffering. See, that's Satan's message. So he says, get behind me, Satan. That's the message of the world. You get all the benefits without any of the commitment. And Jesus says, you make the commitment, you go through the suffering, that leads to the glory. For isn't he then glorified? And finally we end with verse 1 of chapter 9. And this is going to lead into what we talk about next time. Next week, the transfiguration. This mysterious, beautiful picture of Jesus and a few of his disciples. But you know what he's doing? And again, we'll pick this up next time. But he is then giving them a confirmation of all that he just said. Because in in chapter 9, verse 1, right after he told them this is what the road to discipleship looks like, he says, truly I say to you, there are even some standing right here. Remember, who's he talking to? The disciples? The crowd? There are some standing here right now who will not taste death will not die until they what they see the kingdom of god after it has come with power now these words have confused people for a long time they can be confusing but i think again if you keep it in context you know what happens next which we're going to look at next week the transfiguration he invites a few of his disciples peter james and john they go up into the mountain of and um he is transfigured and what happens again we'll look at it next week but it is jesus very simply giving confirmation that he is who he says he is, he shows them a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom. He he came bringing the kingdom message. And he says, some of you, he knew it was going to be, the few of the disciples, some of you, you won't even die until you see some of the power of the kingdom. And in the transfiguration, Jesus shows them, right? A glimpse so they could see more clearly his glory. His glory and the coming of His kingdom. And He does it as a confirmation for them. Isn't that just like Jesus? He requires discipleship. He requires the commitment. He requires, church, that we lay down our lives, that we lay down our pride at His feet and say no to ourselves and yes to Him no matter what that cost is. But we do that. And then He says, let me give you a little glimpse of what's in store for you little glimpse jesus is so good at that isn't he just reveal himself it's all about jesus reveals himself to us is that not astounding to begin with that jesus is willing to do that that's how much he loves you that's how much he loves you that he'd be willing to say look it's going to be a hard road 
but I'll be with you. And here is just a glimpse of the glory that awaits you in heaven. There will be crowns. You will be rewarded. But you know what? What's it going to take? It's going to take a journey. It's going to take a journey to Jerusalem. A journey to the cross. A journey to suffering. Church, what does that look like for us today? How do we suffer for Christ? It starts with laying down our pride. It starts with saying, yes, I have I have desires. I have things that I want to do. I, I even think sometimes I know better than God does. But I'm supposed to take those things and surrender them to God. I say often, church, it's not about trying harder in the Christian life. It's about surrendering more. Are you willing to surrender your life to Him? If you've given your life to Him and recognized Him as the Savior, the only way for salvation, the only way to secure eternal life is believing and trusting in Him for that. Are you then willing to make that commitment to be a disciple and to start that journey? Because Jesus says, we're starting a journey together. Are you with me? So that's the question you need to ask yourself. Are you with Him? Are you with Him? Are you willing to be that disciple? Are you willing to do what He says? To deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Him. Are you willing, in order to save your life, are you willing to lose it? Are you willing to make that commitment for Him? See, He wants us to see. He wants us to see clearly. But the way that we do that is keep our eyes focused on Him. See, Peter got it right, then he got it wrong. And Jesus rebuked him. Let it be a rebuke. Let it be a reminder for us this morning. We identify with Christ and we do so rightly. But then do we get it wrong when it comes to discipleship? We're willing to see and to count the cost. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in a, in a final song. And uh, as we do, as always, and we have a time of worship, let it be a time where you allow God to do something in your heart. Where you allow God to take His Word that we read this morning, His Word that we gave attention to, are you willing to let it transform you? See, that's what God's Word does. God's Word has all the power. His words are transformative. But we have to let it. We have to let Him change. We have to let Him change us. That's what transformation is. It's from the inside out. So as you worship, whether you're going to sit or stand, as you worship to this song, let the words that you're singing mean something to you. Even just make it a prayer that God would give you the strength and the courage to lay it all down at the foot of His cross. Whether it's a pain or suffering you're experiencing now, whether it's a disappointment in life, whether it's some kind of true struggle, physical, mental, emotional, relational, whatever it is, are you willing to lay it down and to say no to self but yes to Jesus? Are you willing to walk with Him to Jerusalem? Are you willing to walk with Him all the way to the cross? He says there'll be great rewards. He says that's the way you live the most victorious life. That's the way you become more like me. But it won't be easy. But I'll be there every step of the way. See, if we're walking with Him, then we're with Him every step of the way. Father God, as we just listen to the, the music play, God, I would pray that you just move our hearts.